I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. I've been doing this sort of thing for some years now, uh, and I've published a number of books. But I can safely say that it's getting more difficult to introduce them to the reading public. And because of the nature of this text, it's very, very hard to summarize it. And, you know, often audiences with the best will in the world uh, like things in fairly bite-sized chunks. And I can't really slice and dice this one for you. And the other thing is that I got kind of fed up with being a caricature of myself. It's getting really boring. Uh, So I like to try and avoid that as well. So what I thought I'd do was read to you uh, and then take some questions. And that way, because I'll just read from the beginning of the book you'll all kind of know as much as you know, if you see what I mean. It will make a kind of level the playing field. So I hope that's acceptable to you. Uh, It's not a lot you can do about it if it isn't acceptable (laughs) to you. I mean, I suppose you could run up here and physically attack me, but, I mean, come on if you think you're hard enough. (laughs) All you need to know is it's May the 4th, 1970, and we're in Willesden in North London. Candle to light you to Here comes a chopper. Leslie, Busner thinks. Bloody Leslie, playing the kid's guitar. Though there ought to be another expression. Playing being what Gould does with a Steinway, or Dupre with a cello. The clawed cord howls in the hallway and tears up the stairs. It's not playing, Busner decides. It's mucking about. That's what he's doing, mucking about with his mucky hands, one of which throttles the guitar's neck, twisting its steely cords so that they yow, wow, wow. This, too, Busner suffers as he also endures the crack-fizzled duck-duck whine of the flat body, Demoiselle de Wilsden, being laid down on the bare boards of the downstairs back room the kid and Leslie share. Not an ideal arrangement, that. Mercifully, 
Leslie's roll-up stained fingers twiddle the knurled knob of the little Marshall amplifier so the static genie flees. I no longer dream of her. Busner cocks an ear for a while longer, expecting to hear the pet sounds of Oscar, the house dog, who often responds to guitar feedback with his own. But there's nothing. The lucky beast, Busner thinks, must have managed to doze through it. And so he resumes his humble task. He looks to the claw-footed bathtub, the chipped enamel sides and seaweedy, seaweedy stains trailing below the taps, suggesting to him a tramp steamer turned inside out. His wrinkled fingertips, flatty butts, but recently trawled from it, pinch the dimpled handle of the safety razor and twist and twist, but it resists until he receives the support of heavy bombers, massive artillery, a superb logistics system, nearly a thousand helicopters and about 10,000 men. His capacity for recall, Busner believes, has greatly improved since he stopped taking notes during analytic sessions, allowing them instead to develop as they will, freeform, without the imposition of those prejudicial categories implicit in the logos, bearing down on all these wriggling little thoughtfish. And yet, and yet, he muses, can it really be that they call it a fish hook? Yes! A fishhook salient of Cambodia some 20 miles long and 10 miles deep. The exact wording returns to him, and he sighs, satisfied, as he separates the two halves of the razor's head and eases out the old blade. You're more likely to cut yourself doing this, he thinks, as he bends to fiddle a bit of toilet paper from the wonky roller than shaving. Then he wraps the blade up carefully before, without looking, dropping it into the waste paper basket underneath the sink. Some slight irregularity in a sound that would anyway be slight pulls him up, and Busner squats down to ogle the raffia cylinder. It's full to overflowing with twisted brown paper bags, some of which are red blotchy. So he thinks. They've all come on at once, once again, and the cycle has been completed. He wonders why it is that although the women all sleep next door, they come tramping up here to change their tampons and sanitary towels, especially since this means they will, at a vulnerable moment, be in close proximity to the creep. Then he sighs, and straightening up eases into another speculation. Hopefully, this will mean the tension that dominated Friday's house meeting will now be dissipated. No. Tension, whether premenstrual or otherwise, doesn't capture it. This was frenzy. Van de Graaff crackling from Irene to Eileen to Maggie to Podge. Saturday saw them all sulking in their separate corners, but then Sunday was, of course bloody. Now, at the start of another week, Busner finds himself futilely yearning for all that electricity to have been earthed by the bedrock 
of reasonableness. Addressing his own worried face in the mirror, he says aloud, We're doing just great here, in what he imagines is a convincing impersonation of General Shoemaker. Then, feeling he hasn't quite got the twang right, he says again, We're doing just great here. While by way of confirming this greatness, he presses on with the job to hand. Searching out the little box of razor blades on the wonky, cluttered, dried toothpaste blobbed shelf beneath the mirrored cabinet, easing out a fresh one, carefully unwrapping its tissue shroud. As he undertakes these manoeuvres, Busner's penis wheedles its way from the towel inefficiently knotted about his hips to nuzzle against the cold sink. He turns on the tap and twirls his shaving brush on a circumcised stub of shaving soap. He knows the temperament of women and wipes the suds around his face. A Bakerloo-line train comes clacketing along the embanked track at the, back, at the end of the back garden, and even as Busner makes the first judicious stroke, he feels the house rocking on its foundations, pulling and pushing the adjoining properties as the entire 150-yard-long terrace sways and crashes to nowhere. Obicularis oris, bucinator, depressed labii inferioris. Anatomizing his own face into naked being, he remembers what a duffer I was at dissection. The long, enamel-topped oak bench under cold northern heavens. Natural light, gentlemen, said Roberts, with a vicious rolling of his R's. Natural light, gentlemen, and lady. Always there was this grudging admission of Isabel McKechnie's presence on his second pass. Because whatever your queasy little tum-tums are telling ye, this is a profoundly natural procedure. Every tutorial, Busner thinks, had begun with this admonition. Rote learning resulting from a lifetime of rote teaching. He had no doubt that Roberts was still there, still pacing the worn boards between the benches, still imposing himself between the shaking white-coated shoulders of first years and leaning down to point out this or that feature of the human carcasses their scalpels were inefficiently reducing to trife. What was it Marinetti had demanded for his heroic fascist dinner, raw meat torn by trumpet blasts? What was it Roberts had trumpeted every bloody time? Busner! Busner! Really, man? You'll never get inside the head that way. Will you look at the god-awful bloody mess you're making? Yes, the god-awful mess. The indignity heaped after death on the corpse that had been lofted over the battlements of Craig House or perhaps brought by motorized tumbrel from car stairs. Either way, the remains of a mental or criminal defective of no account a burden on the ratepayers, whose only utility lay in his or her limbs being disarticulated and severed, the head sawn off, then thrust in my face by the bloody burke. Here comes a chopper to chop off your head. He smiles, then frowns, 
at his own corrugator supercilii in the listing mirror with its blush of condensation. He dares to see himself for a moment, as Roberts must have done, a grinningly inefficient predator with an undershot jaw who swims round and around in a sea of body parts. The carefree automatism of shaving is over. The tube train has passed and stands loitering by the platform at Dollis Hill, waiting to suck in through its rubber-lipped doors a few stragglers who, rather than joining the throng on the other platform heading citywards, are commuting in reverse to Wembley, Harrow and points still further out. Busner's eyes slide to the narrow window. His hand follows, and as he gropes at the gauzy skirts meant to preserve my own modesty, the towel at last quits his hips and flops onto the wet lino. It will, he thinks, be another fine May day, after the sunny weekend that saw them all picnicking in Livingston Park. Podge, floating and ethereal, despite the tight binding of her tartan mini-dress to the tartan rug she sat on and the tartan pattern thermos beside her. Then there'd been the creep, floundering into the boating pond, Oscar nipping at his heels and attempting to board a pedalo by groping its bosomy floats before Roger Gorovich got hold of his webbing belt and pulled him away from the shocked, mivy-stained faces and feverishly bicycling thighs of its teenage girl crew. A sunny, bloody Sunday, to be followed by a sunny, bloody Monday. To an outsider, Zach Busner imagines, it would seem absurd that a community such as this one, with no rules and only the queerest of conventions, the members of which have no occupations, unless, that is, you count the fashioning of mobiles from black thread, wire and dependent gigors, and accorded their travels to labour exchanges and hospitals, commercial ones, nonetheless responds to the economic cycle, relaxing palpably at the weekend, then becoming increasingly uptight throughout the week, crisis succeeding crisis, until during the house meeting held every Friday morning, there would invariably be a dreadful bloody freakout. On one of his rare trips into town, Busner had been shocked by the blatancy of an advertising slogan. Same thing, day after day, tube, work, dinner, work, tube, armchair, TV, sleep, tube, work. How much more can you take? One in ten goes mad. One in five cracks up. And this mantra stayed with him. Although after much repetition, it dawned on him, this ability of capitalism to so accurately identify its own symptoms was itself part of the doctor-created disease. The house opposite stares back at Busner through its own glaucoma tool, and he considers its solidly fanciful form, the three-sided bay windows on the ground and first floors, separated by chunky pilasters, plinths, really, crying out for the honour of aldermen's busts or hippogriffs, supporting the half-vertical section of a tower, which at roof level is surmounted by three-quarters of a turret, the back of which is buried in the roof tiles. 
The whole facade has been recently painted an unbecoming colour, somewhere between off-white and pale yellow, that suggests to him the strong likelihood of an institution yet to come into being that will one day be ubiquitous. Below the twin of his own window, heavy iconic columns frame an emphatically shut front door. Busner knows the inhabitants of this doppelganger villa by sight and has also spoken to the patriarch. He had to, after Eileen, naked and squeezing her dry, cracked nipples as she used them to ventriloquize some verses of the Sermon on the Mount, had laid her Christ-like Barbie doll in their window box manger. He had to explain that Eileen, who had run up the tiny chiffon robe herself and glued locks of her own hair onto the doll's bright pink nubbin of a chin, clever really, was, as were some of the other new tenants at numbers 117 and 119, rather unusual and prone to be a bit, well, distressed from time to time. But they were all basically harmless and decent people. This, Errol Meehan had expostulated, be lunacy. And for a moment, Zach couldn't tell whether he meant Eileen's behaviour or his own explanation. Either way, Meehan, a member in good standing of the West Indian Ex-Servicemen's Club in Harlesden, who polished his immaculate Ford console to a high shine on Sunday afternoons while wearing an equally immaculate blue blazer with lustrous brass buttons and an RAF crest on its breast pocket, seemed hell-bent on being a pain in the arse. I give you due warning, man. Don't be vexing me. If your patience... Busner had thought it prudent to foreground his own qualifications. Be making any more trouble, any at all, than I be calling down the lot on you. My wife is seriously poorly, an invalid, and any disturbance might well put her over the edge. I can pick up me telephone. Mian actually mimed the lifting of this instrument to his cruciferous ear and speak directly with Sergeant Seeley the community relations officer. Lord be my witness. Meehan's fine baritone quavered enthusiastically up the scale as he slammed down the non-existent Bakelite and snatched it straight up back up again. I can get a hold of Mr. Feaston as well and ask him to look into the matter of your pepperworks, certifications, licensings and so forth. At the time, Although in no doubt about the seriousness of the threat Meehan presented, Zack found himself powerless to mollify the man. Transfixed as he was by these magical motions, the body busyings of that ivory finger dialing the frigid air between them and the dissipations of his steamy breath as Meehan communicated with his spirit world of MPs and policemen. He backed away to the sunnier side of the street, the Jesus dolly in his hand, while his neighbour continued to admonish him. What goes round? Well, in my experience, it does come round again. Then, as now, the nets in the Mian's top window jerked open to reveal Mrs. Mian, who, far from seeming on the brink, from this vantage appeared as robust as the Petrine rock. Her great, 
grayish slab of a face framed by these veils, her amorphous bosom thrust forward and bearing on it the crusading symbol. Then, as now, Mrs. Meehan seemed about to launch into an apocalyptic sermon, calling down the star called Wormwood on the miserable whore who had slouched towards Jerusalem. Months later, still repelled by her husband's very Christian lack of charity, Busner stares across at Mrs. Meehan and admits aloud, they do have a point, because the underlying equation of the concept house, as he and Roger Gurevich have dubbed their community, is insoluble, there being no rules with which to operate on its distressed, often outright hysterical terms. He sighs and lets go of his own neck curtain, the falling folds of which displace an avocado stone balanced on the rim of a jam jar by three toothpicks inserted in its slimy sides. The stone bobs in the greenish water, tangled in weedy rootlets. Bloody thing, he expostulates as he fiddles it out in the sink, refills the jar, then struggles to reinsert the toothpicks and so achieve once more this fine equilibrium. Suggestive, he thinks, of some Hindu cosmology. The world is an avocado stone, balanced by three toothpicks on the rim of a cosmic jam jar. Although, if this is the case, there are many worlds. For in number 117, and next door in 119, he has seen several other avocados germinating. They are Miriam's doing, of course. Another of her attempts to make of the concept house some sort of home. She and their two sons share a bedroom in 119 on the three nights a week they come over from the Highgate flat. And although Busner prefers to imagine this is in keeping with the way the community, like any tribal group, has separated according to sex, with prepubescence treated as effectively female, he cannot escape the truth, which is that I can't stand that creep. This being how she and the other women refer to Claude behind his back and how he came to be dubbed the creep. At any rate, this is what Busner wants to believe. The ascription is part of the language game we all play, rather than indicative of the essentialism the women betray when they say things such as, he's bloody creepy, that man, he gives me the complete creeps, or I hate it when he creeps up on me in that creepy way. It is, of course, the creep who has driven all the women to sleep in a protective huddle in 119, and in periods of still darker reflection, Zack finds himself entertaining outright nominalism, the creep, he worries, may be called the creep not because he is creepy by nature or because his behavior is creepy, but due to the fact that in a world of completely unique objects and persons, it is he, and he alone, who's the only 100% genuine solid gold creep. Bernie, the bolt, please. The candy striper, ripe little blondie. She knows she done it and she done it good. She unzip herself and she push up her bazoom and she fiddle with her brazier so that every goddamn male patient in the day room who ain't zonked sees all she got 
And she says, oh me, oh my, ain't this just the tightest, awkwardest, orneriest thing? Ain't it just the tightest, awkwardest, orneriest thing? Ain't it? The tube has passed by, and the morning traffic on the high road is a distant swish. So it is, with his hands still spread on the windowsill, the fat and tropic seeds suspended between them, that Busner becomes aware of this incantation rising up towards him. Creepy, that. Just the tightest, awkwardest, orneriest thing. Ain't it? Ain't it? Ain't it just? The creep, in common with many of the seriously disturbed whom Busner has observed, has this occult art of manifesting himself psychically moments, sometimes hours, before he physically appears. A minor mishap such as a dropped matchbox, or a word leaping from dense type, or twigs tapping on a window pane, will provoke the uncanny sensation that he is nearby. Her gams is all nylon shook-shook, her white wedgies is all click-click, her ass is so goddamn wriggly-icious, you just want to bite into it. Ain't it just? It's in keeping with this that the creep's monologuing, which is continuous, uninterrupted by sleep, although impeded by eating and drinking, and only fractionally quieter when he's heavily sedated, should chime with what Zach's thinking about. True, the creep does live at the concept house, his boxes full of old electrical engineering manuals and trendy books by organic intellectuals, Marcuse, Norman O. Brown, Colin Wilson, and also Ronnie himself, are scattered around the back upstairs bedroom. So this latest manifestation could be dismissed as mere coincidence, were it not that after yesterday's boating pond incident, he dashed raving from the park, not returning until now, to eat us all up. Busner considers for a beat the oral acquisitive nature of schizophrenia, then spotting an old bath cube melting on the lino under the claw-footed tub, he squats, picks it up, and tosses it experimentally away from himself. Fort, he says, and then louder, da! No, he thinks. The creep hadn't returned yesterday afternoon or during the long evening, which the communard spent, as usual, barricaded behind the television set. Why, Busner niggles at it once again, would anyone seize upon the stage name Leif Erikson? And the creep had still not come back when, having watched the last three quarters of an hour of rear window holding the kid's soft and trembling hand, Busner double-locked the front door and finally went to his own bed. He knew the creep couldn't get into the house anyway. Before he charged after the pedalo, he'd taken off the bizarre necklace of braided ribbon and keychain he wore round his neck and from which hangs a scallop shell, a tin opener with a corkscrew attachment, a tiny Japanese transistor radio, his door key, a bear claw and a Tibetan amulet and coiled it into Podge's lap. He did this sort of thing, the creep, singling out one or other of the women for attention, making them, as it were, his favourite for a day or a week. And Zack had to hand it to him, 
For no matter how unsettling the background noise of the man's sexuality, an impotent rapist was Busner's own diagnosis, one who'd kill the thing he couldn't make love to, he nonetheless managed, almost always, to behave towards them with exaggerated courtliness, bowing and ushering them through doors, pulling out chairs and fetching things for them as the threnody for one or other of his captious selves. Why does you do that to him? Does you do that to him? And I does put you in the coal hole with the tar baby. Continue unabated. It was this gentlemanly ballet, choreographed by the creep's undoubted charisma, that made the chosen one, no matter how creepy she found him, feel embraced, even as she recoiled. The same courtliness would have prevented him from knocking up the house in the night. The same courtliness and another quality possessed by the creep that Busner couldn't help but characterize as an acute sense of self-preservation. Accepting the occasional wild outburst, and these, if his supposition was correct, might be solely for effect, the creep always seemed to know precisely how far he could go, and to have, ever present to his seething awareness, a DMZ overflown by howling fighter jets into which he would never venture. In the inkiest, dankest hours of the suburban night, when the rails at the end of the garden had ceased their electro-hum, it was this kenniness that Busner suspected was indicative of the deepest and most dreadful truth about the creep. Namely, that far from being the most seriously disturbed of the concept house's residents, he might not be disturbed at all. Busner's bare arm, sweeping radar beamishly beneath the tub, has located the bath cube. Duh! But then it is fought again. His exclamation sopped up by the lank and balding towels hanging from hooks on the back of the door and absorbed into the crocheted bath mats, damply tufted Corolla. He repeats it. Fort, da, and then, still kneeling, embroiders it. Da, 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 while praying fervently that when these da's are no longer here, the creep won't be either. Rather, up on some high chaparral, thousands of miles from Wilsdon, booted and horsed, a Winchester thrust into the leather scabbard beside his saddle, his Stetson silhouetted against the Patala Palace of a Mesa. No such luck. Throw de darky in de coal hole, throw de massa in there too. Hearing the creep's weird minstrelsy leak in under the bathroom door, Zack pictures his antagonist quite clearly. He'll be sitting sideways on the mat immediately inside the front door, bracing himself with his big old army boots and his quaking shoulders between the scuffed white walls papered with a doubly geometric snowflake pattern. His battered brow with its head... Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Airy Aurora knocking against the dull, deal certainty of the telephone table upon which sits the smooth, bone-yellow telephone, waiting to ring in a judgment call. Life to death. A to D. Eek! The postman has yet to come. And so, Captain Claude Evenrude, US Army Air Corps, retired, awaits him. Thick, black, felt-tip in hand, ready to do his duty as he sees it, by censoring the enlisted men and women's mail. Usually, one or other of these subordinates will get to the door before the envelopes are thrust through the letterbox and, swinging it open, snatch them from the postman's hand. If they don't manage this, the consequences are postcards upon which the writing has been, seemingly at random, obliterated. Here, an entire line, there an isolated word, or perhaps a single letter, falling victim to the creep's black stripes and spots. Not only the message, but the picture over leaf suffers. Anne Hathaway's cottage, Leeds Castle, maybe a Kew hothouse or two, will be squeakily defaced, although the creep reserves his most creative censorship for faces. Beatles mop-tops are dropped on top of the Queen's tiara and a Hitler moustache shaded over her pert top lip. Given a group scene, Brighton bathers, say, or the household cavalry trooping the colour, he will expertly black out all the arms and legs so that what remains is a smattering of torsos. This is all very annoying, but what's intolerable is that the creep slits open envelopes and censors their private contents. Also bills, which he subtracts from with his felt tip and then annotates with a biro, adding complex equations, bracketing the few lonely figures he is permitted to survive, so creating godly integrals and Satan's differentials, demonstrating the ballistics of heavenly orbs and satanic tridents that will occur, that shall occur, if I have my way, unless we now take time to make the common purse, 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 oh heck, I don't know, you see, in there is 76536.1 AM85NR45HJ88 turned insy outsy. This being the sort of thing he says when confronted by Miriam or Radio Gurevich, the only residents besides Buzner who've ever been robust enough to stand up to the creep. His arm still sweeping for the fort cube and oofing with the effort, Buzner realizes this maddening recollection of monologuing is itself underscored by sing song rhyming that slips up the stairs. Oh, royster, doister, little oyster, down in the slimy sea. You ain't so different lying on your shell bed to the likes of little old me. But royster, doister, you're somewhat moister than I would like to be. Perversely, despite everything, Busner believes he'd be content to listen to the creep all day 
and for many subsequent ones. He'd ask the others to leave quite coolly, install himself in one of the straight-back kitchen chairs, put Claude in the one opposite, then he could fully concentrate on what this man has to tell me without recourse to the prejudicial pathologies, psychotic, schizophrenic, manic, schizophreniform, that he has steadily abandoned. True, without the compass of orthodox psychiatry or psychoanalytic theory, Busner finds it next to impossible to get a fix as he bobs up and down on Claude's choppy word sea, its surface crisscrossed by narrative currents, swirling into whirlpools of song that subside into glassily superficial doldrums of what might be anecdotage, but beneath which, Busner is convinced, fluxes and refluxes of dangerous repression coldly circulate. This much, the anti-psychiatrist will concede. The creep's soliloquies, and they are certainly this, the dialogic being affected only by mythical figures or imagined characters, display neither the stereotypies nor the overbearing unimagination of those forced to play the schizophrenic game. On the contrary, the creep in all he says or does is bewilderingly inventive, never prolix, and repeats himself only for rhetorical effect. He is, Busner thinks not for the first time, it's that pleasing an image, a sort of desert island upon whose sandy shores others, Radio Gurevich included, can leave only the impress of their feet, mere dimples that soon enough are erased by the next neural wave. The catfuck wail of the front gate snaps through his reverie. The postman is out there, his canvas sack lashed around his grey suit jacket with a length of sizal. And as Busner rises dizzily, yanks open the bathroom door and stands naked at the top of the steep and uncarpeted stairs, all these benignant visions desert him. Claude! he cries. And Claude! he shouts louder. But it's to no avail, because the bugger doesn't hear any voices at all. While the male has penetrated the flap and been grabbed before Busner has descended five steps. With rapacious efficiency, the creep wields his untrimmed and horny thumbnail to slit open an envelope, registering the futile intervention only by turning up his own volume. How darkies have you seen the massa with the moustache on he face? Then he falls to censoring with a vengeance. Accepting this as a fait accompli, Busner sits down heavily then rises abruptly. Splintered bollocks! An important fact about inter-experience, insofar as this can be said to transpire at all with the creep, that he is kept resolutely to himself, despite urging the other residents to be completely open, for there's nothing to fear, is that on the one occasion Busner tried wresting the mail from its self-appointed censor, he hit me hard. A brutal uppercut, learnt where? In barroom, barracks, or depression-era blackboard jungle, Busner couldn't say. Indeed, he thinks, if I did know, I'd know everything. And, as he caresses the tempered skin of his cheeks, he touches also the memory of this violent coda. From this angle, the creep appears pitiful. 
his balding shanks exposed by his hiked-up army surplus trousers, his knobbly wrists sticking from the frayed ends of his red acrylic roll neck, the wiry you of him whiplashing as he censors and sings, Ho, darkies, have you seen the massa with the cudgel in he hand? And it was that hand that cudgeled Blood Busner while still holding the felt tip. For when he'd managed to get back upstairs, he saw reflected in the triptych of mirrors on the mauve-skirted vanity table side views of bloody rivulets running from the corners of his mouth and a full frontal of his swelling and heavily censored top lip. Sniffing any old iron and acetone, he'd blood-knocked himself. Quick, quick, nurse! The screens! Although he was scared and his heart shook, Claude having hit him sufficiently hard to lay me out cold. The impact taking a big chunk out of Busner's visual field so that a maroon tide rushed in from its crenulated edges, eating up first the bebop lino's screeching pattern, next his attacker's calmly leering face, its lips still flapping out words. Then, for a few instants, all that remained afloat in this ruddy tide were Claude's ruined teeth, which were falling out one by one until there was only a single closing down white dot thank you i think there's a, a mic that claire has so if you indicate your willingness to be inquisitive uh, thanks for that to what degree have you planned out in advance what you're going to write as you're writing I do plan the novel I'm going to write quite rigorously uh, at some, yeah, at some level of detail, yes. Uh, and then I ignore the plan. So what well, I tend to write, I think, novel, I think texts only exist as versions. So you're only ever going to write a version of what you write. So, that, so but you need to plan a novel so that you can then diverge from an established plan. So this shark novel is a kind of simulacrum of a possible shark novel no. does that help you at all it does to me it seemed one of the possible benefits of writing in this experimental if you don't mind that term way is the potential to surprise yourself yes i suppose that's right maybe it is a yeah it's a good point maybe it is a bit about surprising oneself um certainly i think that i mean it's not it's really kind of indirect uh, monologue and uh, rather than stream of consciousness, but certainly the the freedom from the tyranny of the third personal omniscient narrator uh, means that that one's brought much closer in in contact with association of ideas and the way that that language itself produces its own associations of ideas. And I certainly find that more fun to write. But I mean, it's not about me, really, is it? Is it? Actually, it is, because I've got to be alone with this shit for, like, years. I mean, even if you guys read it, it could be over an hour. <laughs> um, you've got a very precise sense of timing there. With um, I'm old enough to get the references, which is quite sad, whether it's the High Chaparral or Bernie the Bolt. Are yeah, you I didn't get the theme tune. No, I you didn't. Remember did. the theme tune. Yeah. Why is it again? 
I'm not singing. Or is that the Virginian? No, it's not the Virginian. Oh, yeah, it does. It sounds more like the Waltons. You're right. Can anybody remember High Chaparral? I'm not singing it. <laughs> he, had, he had the hots for a very young wife, as I remember. It was Victoria. Um, are you very... Is that a sort of sense of distance and disgust, or are you nostalgic for that? Because it's, it's quite resonance in with, the, in with the Freud and the highfalutin stuff. There's some interesting well, I mean, stuff I don't in know there. How old you are. I mean, I was actually, Too old. <laughs> well, I don't imagine you're the same age as me. I mean, I was nine in 1970. So it's not really... It's interesting writing... I mean, the, the, the May 4th, 1970 is the kind of overall framework for the book, but we go to a lot of other places as well and times as well. So, but, but yeah, May the 4th, 1970, Wilston is the... Why Wilston? It's the framing... I don't actually... I don't really like Wilston. I'm sorry if anybody's here from Wilston. It's not my favourite suburb. Um, yeah, no, I didn't feel that nostalgic about it because... I'm, I'm approaching that period through adult eyes rather than a nine-year-old's eyes, so I'm not kind of thinking about all the nine-year-old things necessarily. I mean, Busner in that scene is, is preoccupied by the Vietnam War and pre preoccupied by what turned into the extremely <coughs> nasty incursion of <coughs> Cambodia. So uh, he's not really... You know, I think there's a temptation now, the baby boomers are getting older, we live in this culture of kind of phenomenal, not exactly nostalgia, but retention of kind of cultural minutiae. And it's almost, I sometimes fantasize that, you know, Tim Berners-Lee and the rest of those wonks invented the web just so we could wallow in this <laughs> bollocks instead of like every previous generation decently consigning them to oblivion, you know. Uh, <laughs> Instead, we have this kind of simulacrum of nine, May the 4th, 1970 in Wilsdon readily available to us. So I, I think we're beyond nostalgia now, aren't we? We, we have to, because of the web, I, don't, I think it is very profound, actually, in terms of the way it affects us psychically. We're kind of condemned to be chained to this stuff now, to kind of space hoppers and choppers and Super Bowls forever. <laughs> you know. So no, not exactly nostalgia. So, can I just ask how important you think it is to base things historically correctly, uh, and uh, and geographically correctly? Well, it's, it's important to me. I mean, I whenever I talk to Tyro writers and they insist on showing me their stuff, very very quickly you usually have to say to them, what you need to understand about fiction is that it's largely about facts. You know, and it really is. And, and most of the solecisms and errors that Tyro writers make are by trying to construct the fictive out of stuff they don't really know. I had a similar argument about this, and Zadie Smith um, in, I think it was NW, writing about a halal butcher on Cricklewood Broadway in a mm. particular year, which did, it didn't exist. So. Well, stupid Zadie. But e e equally... She got, I think she has got the internet, because she said something she has, about yeah. how she had a programme to switch it off when she was writing. But equally, then, I try and place your place in Wilsdon, because I'm brought up in Harlston and yeah, Wilsdon, so... I think you'll find me painfully accurate. Will you? Oh, good, OK. Yes. <laughs> Including things like... Because I, I think and it's there is hugely a, important. 
a long passage about shops on the Wilston High Road. Oh, is there? Was, I look forward yeah, to that then. That was researched in phonetic detail. So, it makes no, me feel better. Well, write to me if I've got anything wrong. Oh, I will. And I'll, send I'll you, run it past my brother who I'll pointed you, out the butchers. I'll send you a crackerjack pencil. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody else? Yeah, there's a, there's a young, youngish. Well, actually, quite young man over there. Thank you. Is there a real-life model for the concept house in the same way some of the methods oh, yeah, in? Yeah, very yeah. much so. I mean, it's, it's solidly based on the kind of communities that R.D. Lang and the Philadelphia Association set up in the 60s, 70s, and even in the 80s. <laughs> so Kingsley Hall is the famous one. Sure. Uh, but there were a number of others, and I had a friend who lived in one of these houses, right. so I visited one in the early 80s. Uh, so, yeah, it's very much based on those <laughs> kinds of experiments in communal living, therapeutic mm -hmm. communities. Was it almost 100% unsuccessful in real life? That well, kind no, of, those they're not treatments? unsuccessful, no? actually. And uh, there are, not only are they not unsuccessful, but they've been perfectly reputable, properly conducted, longitudinal studies of, the, of communities of this sort where... It's, it's been established, to my satisfaction at least, that they're just as effective as giving right. people the liquid kosh. I just remember an example where they were working with offenders and there was a very high re-offending rate. From right, some of those we're methods, not talking about These aren't offenders in this case, are they? Then? No, yeah. no. Okay. Um, you know, why do we live in a, in, a, in a society that is so saturated with uh, psychopharmacology? I mean, there are various reasons, but, but largely it's connected with money, which is what everything in this miserable shithole is connected with nowadays. There's a gentleman there in a rather lovely pale blue shirt. When you're finishing the novel, um, do you get distracted by the next book? Well, I was finishing Umbrella and planning the next book, and... and I was quite interested in writing a kind of version of, of Zabel's The Emigrants. I love that technique he uses in that book to write about the Holocaust, where he really just writes about the way it distorts these six characters' lives that he does the mini-biographies for. I thought of writing something about some of the drug addicts and alcoholics I knew over the years, particularly because at the time I was thinking about writing this book, um, I realised that, that several of the people I'd known very well were dead. Uh, and I thought, well, that'd be kind of interesting, but I don't want to write about addiction again. I've written about drugs and addiction, and I'm bored by it. It's boring. But I thought, well, why don't I write about their lives never mentioning drugs or alcohol? So these characters are just always, their relationships are breaking up, they're ending up in mental hospitals, they're ending up with their arms chopped off, and there's no kind of explanation for it. And suddenly this, this sort of slogan, Jaws Without the Shark, popped into my head. I thought it would be like the movie Jaws, but you'll never see the shark. You'll just see people running up the beach and it will be all the more haunting for that. Uh, and then I started, for some reason, I read the original Peter Benchley novel, which is fascinating to go back and read because, I mean, it's actually a novel about class consciousness in America. It's not really about sharks at all. It's basically about Chief Brody's sense of being de classe on Amityville Island. Uh, so that was interesting. And then, just for completism, I watched the Spielberg movie, and there's this discrepancy between the two, which is, 
Quint, the grizzled fisherman in the Spielberg movie, recounts to Hooper, the cuddly marine biologist, that he was on the USS Indianapolis, this uh, American naval ship that was sunk in the Pacific on the 31st of July 1945. A thousand men went into the water, 700, uh, 300 came out, 700 of them were eaten by sharks. And then, I was working on the end of Umbrella, I thought, hmm, there's another, there's a sequel to Umbrella here. There's the same strange relationship between warfare and illness suddenly kind of, and I thought, oh, forget about these bloody drug addicts, fuck them, let's <laughs> fix on this. So that was unusual for me because I normally know what I'm writing a couple of books ahead. Uh, so that was, uh, and not only did Sharp spring into being, but the third part of the trilogy came to me as well. So I kind of know where I'm going with it, yeah, sort of. Hello. Uh, I wasn't really going to ask this because it's not really a question, but your, your reference to drug addicts made me think about it as well. Um, I just recently read Sebastian Horsley's memoir and featuring a guest appearance by you, and I was just wondering what you, what you thought of that and uh, how you think it stands up and so on. Uh, Sebastian Horsley's memoir? Yeah. I never read it. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> uh, before, I mean, he sent it to me. Sebastian Horsley was a, an artist uh, uh, and a sort of self-styled, dandiacal figure, a kind of Soho, bon viveur and dandy, I suppose, very much trying to kind of be like Julian McLaren Ross or somebody from, you know, the 40s. Um, I, I was sort of fond of Sebastian, but um, I don't really think there's any room for dandies anymore. Certainly once you reach a certain age, it seems just like any other kind of attitudinizing to me. So I found that whole kind of aspect of him rather repugnant, actually. But no, I never read, I, I picked up the memoir, he was still alive then and glanced at it and thought, oh, I've had enough of this, I'd better to listen to it. After night, lying on a burnt carpet, I don't want to read it as well. <laughs> he probably felt that way about me. <laughs> Did he? <laughs> well, nice to know. <laughs> Let the circle be closed. <laughs> I know he's, he, I, I don't know what he said about me in it, but, you know, good funeral. Did you go to the funeral? No, I went. Oh, you've only just read the book. He had a cracking, I will say that nothing suited him so well in life as the quitting of it. Uh, well, no, I mean, if you're a dandy and you like attitudinizing, then the funeral's got, you know, the showy funeral, horse-drawn, hearse, uh, you know, uh, Undertaker, Major Domo walking ahead with a black ostrich plume in his top hat through the streets of Soho with the cortege behind. That's what you want, isn't it? You said would have liked that every day of his life. <laughs> However, when it came to actually sitting down and applying himself to his art, he was rather deficient. <laughs> well... Pretty good doesn't cut it. <laughs> yes, you see I'm out here. Do you think there's something... What, what do you think of madness in London, and particularly North London? Do you think there's something about North London or London 
that particularly attracts madness? I think that the large cities uh, encourage people to uh, adopt, uh, to, to occupy groups of one sort or another. You know, because the city tends to reflect in its spatial and temporal organization divisions of labor and activity. So I think there is a tendency in that context for people who have uh, poor mental health to become kind of clumped together into definable groups, either by the social services and, and the medical services who wish to categorize them, so there's a kind of foliadeur or self-reinforcing tendency, or among themselves, or just by the very structural capabilities of the city. Uh, you know, it's possible to think about other kinds of environment in which people who are mentally ill wouldn't be quite so salient as a group. So I think it is an aspect of urban life. But by the same token, dentists are more recognisable, or Jews, or jewellers, you know, because they're, they're all in jewellery shops with I am a jeweller written on the front of them. Uh, you know, so it's all part of the course in that way. I don't think London is any more you know, crazy than any other large city, uh, you know, and it has its own forms of uh, dementia, but then so do other cities. I mean, we don't, you know, have Lata like they do in uh, Malaysia, where men get the obsession that their penis is retreating inside their body and often nail it to their inner thigh. Uh, no, I'm not kidding. It's a, it's a real mental illness in those cultures. So, you know, Horses for courses. <laughs> Anybody else? Yeah, there's a couple at the back there. I'll take, I'll take two more, and then fight time. Fight time. <laughs> you mentioned at the beginning about trying to move away from your caricature, so I was just curious how you would sum up that caricature, and whether you think that gets in the way of people reading your, your books, your texts, and how they receive those, well, and how I, that irritates a, you. I'm not in a position to comment on the second part of that, because I'm not somebody else. But from where I'm standing, uh, you know, if you're, if you're in the public eye for many, many years, it becomes very useful to have a serviceable, wipe-clean kind of persona uh, to operate from behind, because it just keeps people off, really. But it also becomes very irksome. It becomes like a sort of scab, eventually, that you're kind of carrying around with you. Uh, and I'm kind of fed up with it, but, you know... That's the way it goes. And I, I don't know whether it gets in the way of people reading the stuff. I suspect it might. You know, I suspect all sorts of things that, you know, the, the point is we live in the sort of, you know, we're living in this terminal moraine of culture. There's so much culture available. You know, if I were, a, were you and I was surveying, well, I am you, and I survey the cultural inscape, you know, what's going to make you pick up one thing rather than another? I mean, by the time you're in your... Uh, you know, especially when you can get any book that's out of print with the push of a button, and most there are. You know, it's just kind of astonishing that, that that whole life, which really anybody, you know, much over 40 in this room this evening, that thing of the acquisition of culture having an aleatoric component, it's what you came across at a certain time and there was a chancy feel to it, is all gone. You know, somebody asked me whether I planned my books. In theory, you know, a young man like this could sit down and plan his cultural life for the next 30 years. 
and know that he would be able to achieve it as long as he was still breathing. So it's a very weird world we're living in now. You were talking about the internet before. Does it give us more facts or more point of views, really? In the way that we can, you know, read some facts, but are they actually truths or are they just point of views from someone else? Well, I don't know. It would be nice to think of the web and the internet as in some sense politically uh, and kind of null in some ways, uh, that, that it was just a resource that we use. But I suspect that's rather a naive view. I, I don't, it's kind of too early to tell, as Chuen uh, Lai said about the French Revolution, but, but my hunch is that a lot of the political... Uh, well, for example, why isn't there a revolution in Spain where a quarter of adults are out of work? Why has there not been large-scale civil disorder in a lot of Southern Europe? And, uh, and surely the answer is the web. It, it actually atomizes people a lot, I think, and it breaks the lateral and personalized bonds that were implicit in effective political organization. And I think it, my hunch is it's had a negative impact on the kind of social solidarity that would have led to effective opposition. You know, back in the day, you know, if you were thinking about going on a march to support the miners, you'd talk to other people about their views on it. You wouldn't sit on the web listening to it. And, and I, I tend to think that kind of political change, you know, history is made by the great mass of individuals, but they need to be en masse. Uh, and it just doesn't work that way anymore. And actually, when you think, you know, everything we said, oh, the Arab Spring and the, you know, all that. But in fact, you know, people are standing around, you know, you go to demos now and everybody's standing around looking at their phone. I mean, that gives you... And after all, all of that content on the web is priced. You know, so the minute you're engaged with the web, you're engaged in a commercial transaction. So it's intrinsically oppositional to the idea of solidarity and collective action. Okay, on, on that cheery note, uh, I'll be here for a while. Very happy to sign books and chat some more. Thanks for coming. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.